Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Holy sweet mother of God shit. Hello, hello, hello. What, what, the, what the hell are you doing? I hope no one's eating dinner. The next best thing, every Monday night from 10 until midnight on Radio Free Brooklyn. Fun for everyone except for dear Jesus. Something like that. So, did you watch the Super Bowl? <laughs> How boring was that? I mean, look, I'm not one to sit here and be like, we're sick of the Patriots. They don't give anyone else a chance. I, you know, that's nonsense. That's poppycock. But really, after winning a game the way they won yesterday's, it's like, okay, I mean, come on. We need some new goddamn blood in that game. Otherwise, no one's ever going to care again. It'd be one thing if they were in year after year and the games were exciting. But Jesus, that game was a snooze fest. Okay, before we get into what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, I need to run something by you, the next best nation. Excuse me? The Radio Free Brooklynites. I was talking to a friend of mine about elections because now we know that I guess the presidential election is in full swing, question mark? I don't even, I mean, whatever. People are declaring left and right. And it got me thinking about how we hold elections here and how how just outrageously stupid it is. And I came up with this idea. Now, I have a token Republican friend. He's one of the few people I ran this by. And his reaction was pretty... Not surprising. I'll just say that right now. But let me run it by you, the next best nation, and see what you guys think. Because I think that while imperfect, and I did think this up in all of five seconds, I think it's way better than what we have now. Okay, so humor me for just a moment. I'm sure most of you heard this week that Howard Schultz, founder and longtime CEO of Starbucks, is planning perhaps to run for president as an independent. Well, if you know that much, then you also know that uh, within probably 45 seconds of making that announcement, he started hearing from people all over the planet and probably some people from Pluto that he should not do it. Even people that like him have been saying, what the fuck? You shut up. You sit down and you shut up. Don't do it. They don't think he should do it because chances are he would take more votes from the Democrat than the scum-sucking, worthless con artist and help Trump get reelected. And they're probably right. I mean, he, he yeah, he shouldn't. He shouldn't do it. But, and here's where we get crazy, okay? So just hold on and humor me. What if we did away? What if we just did away with political parties? You're losing me. I don't know what you're saying. Okay, now calm down and hear me out. So, instead of having two parties hold primaries and then present a nominee, what if we split the country into, let's say, five regions? And the only, in these regions are divided up based on nothing but geography. Nothing but geography, location. They have to be kind of close to each other. So, one region might be... Alaska, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. Okay, that's one region. Anyone from those states who wants to run, go for it. What? Let me say it again. Go for it. You live your best life and go for it. So long as you're eligible to run for president, should you win the nomination, then anyone can run. Anyone can run to be that region's nominee. They would hold a primary just like we do now, only there would be no party affiliation. 
just people from a given region holding debates, presenting ideas, uh, coming up with policies, and the people of that region pick their candidate based not on party, not on party platform, not on previous party platforms, but based on what they see from that person, what they hear, what they decide they like, who they decide they like. Another region, uh, based on, again, nothing but geography, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, both Carolinas, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, and Georgia. That's a region two, let's say. Region three, again, I'm just, oh, hello, I'm so excited about this, I'm punching the mic. That's how I'm showing my excitement. Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, both Dakotas, bam, region three, and so on and so forth. Now, then, when all is said and done, we have five candidates to pick from in the general election. Whoever gets the most votes wins. Screw the Electoral College straight to fucking hell. Obviously, if that remained, if the Electoral College still existed, it would give uh, the regions with New York and California massive advantages. No advantages in this system. None. One person, one vote, nationwide. That way, and there's no party affiliation ever at any point. That way, no candidate, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because of all this crap you're hearing right now about, ooh, is she too far to the left? Uh-oh, Joe Biden's too far to the center. Oh, well, maybe this person's not exactly black enough or a woman enough or you know, she voted for something 25 years ago that maybe isn't perfectly liberal. I'm so sick of that horse shit. This way, no candidate feels like they have to word things a certain way or pretend to love guns when really they know that some basic restrictions would be smart. No towing of party lines. People can be their real selves, present what they really think, and then the country can decide who they want to be president. How is what I laid out not so much smarter, fairer, and better than what we currently have. What we currently have is a dumpster fire. Garbage! It's not just a fire. It's a dumpster that's been lit on fire. And it's a dumpster fire. I mean, look at what happened with fucking Donald Trump. The mere fact that some goon like him could win a nomination, that shows you this is a very bad system. It should be re rethought and rebuilt now. But same with the Democrats. You know, this whole thing, every candidate that's gotten in the race so far, the first articles that have come out have been, oh, what about her likability? Oh, no. How about the way she voted in 1984? Joe Biden, oh, my gosh, he said something wrong at an Anita Hill hearing in 1991. Really? So that, I guess, completely negates everything he has done since then? The whole person that we know him to be it's just bu fucking bullshit and people you know the my republican friend was completely uninterested in this i mean he was just like no it's okay the system we have is fine he's not and i said to him so i'm not speaking out of school very republican of him you know they're not interested in fairness they're not interested in balance they're not interested in you know fairness i'll say it again but even my very liberal friend, he said that 
stuff about regional regional districting is not always good because of this and that and that and this. Again, my regions were completely frivolous. I mean, I, I they were based on again nothing but geography. And by the way, some districts had five, uh, had eight states. Another one had eleven. It's not about any of that. It's not about populate. All it is is that these regions come up with nominees. Now, I get I get that they're saying, well, then suddenly you have like factions of the country, and so you've got a Southern Bell being nominated versus an East Coast Liberal. This is all fucking crazy. We're all human beings. What I present, I think what I presented is way better than what we have. What do you think? Go ahead and tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is my personal Twitter handle, which of course you should be following me. If you're not, then what the hell? My Twitter handle is at John, J-O-N, no H, B as in boy, learner. And of course the shows is Next Best Radio. That's all one word, Next Best Radio. Radio. What do you think? Should we change the voting system? The answer is yes. You're listening to the next best thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what is happening to the newspaper industry, the local newspaper industry in particular. It's dying, folks, and we got to save it. Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So if you'd like to support our mission so we can continue to bring you quality community radio, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. You can donate as little as a dollar and every cent helps helps us to continue to stay on the air. So please, please help support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. And remember, RFB is a 501c3 nonprofit, so your contribution is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Again, that's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. All right. Did you know that Radio Free Brooklyn has a free iPhone and Android app? No. That's right. You no longer need to be chained to your computer to listen. Just download the Radio Free Brooklyn app from the App Store or Google Play so you can listen to independent community radio wherever you go. No. You can find the iPhone app by going to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash iPhone. And the Android app is available at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash Android. So download the app today and listen to RFB wherever you are. This is the next best thing. All right, folks. So. I think we've made it pretty clear that I'm a huge fan of my hometown Kansas City Chiefs and Kansas City Royals for literally, and this is not an exaggeration, for just under 90% of my life, the latter. My beloved Royals were just god-awful. Here's the pitch. Oh, shit. God-awful. Oh, God, were they awful. For a brief period, though, a slight stretch, a nice little window in time, from about 2013 to 2015, they were good. They were damn good. I mean, not only were they good, they were back-to-back American League champions. And in 2015, as all you Mets fans will remember, my Royals won the World Series. Oh, it was just glorious. For those three years, something weird happened to me. Something changed in me. 
I swear to God, in May of 2013 through about June of 2016, there was no bigger Royals fan on the face of the earth than yours truly. I mean, I watched almost every game, tuned into the radio broadcasts. I would search or pay attention throughout the day to any roster moves they might make or changes to the lineup. I would make predictions and prognostications about what they should but probably wouldn't do at the trade deadline. I was nuts. I mean, I was really nuts. I, I was obsessed with the team. I even became <laughs> I even became a staff writer for one of the Royals blogs out there on the interwebs, and it was a pretty prominent one. You can still find my articles. When each player would come up to bat in this period, I knew everything about them. I knew their strengths, their weaknesses, their tendencies, their habits, how they had been playing lately, what injuries they might be battling, etc. I knew what our manager was likely to do and when he was likely to do it. I knew the stupid mistakes he would make and when he would make them. I knew this team front and back, up and down, truly. So every now and then when the Royals would travel here to New York City to take on the Yankees or Mets or when they would be featured as the game of the week on the MLB network. Did you know there was an MLB network? Yeah, neither did most people. But whenever they would be on a national broadcast, I wouldn't be able to listen to my local guys, the guys who I listen to on every other game. Now, whenever that would happen, my only options, of course, would be either the national guys on ESPN or the MLB network or the local guys here in the city, John Sterling and Susan Waldman for the Yankees radio network, for example. Now, regardless of who it was, at some point throughout the game, one of the broadcasters would say something, and it would usually happen more than once a game, to be honest with you. But every now and then, one of the broadcasters would say something, and it could be totally innocuous and trivial. But they would say something that just wasn't quite right. They would say that our first baseman grew up in Orlando when I knew that he was actually from Miami. Or they'd mention that our catcher had won multiple gold glove awards, at least two or three, when really it was four. Little things like this that honestly don't matter and really only diehard Royals fans would possibly catch. That's the point. I mean, don't get me wrong. These people are very good at their jobs, and frankly, the comments they made would never just come out of nowhere. I mean, our first baseman was from Florida. Our catcher has won multiple gold gloves. But as someone who watched the Royals every day and cared very much about the team, and the individual players for that matter, I just simply knew more than these people who did not watch them every day. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, that, my friends, is the difference between national and local news. Seriously? Yes, that's right. A lot. In fact, most if not all of the most important journalism done today comes from local reporters and editors who care about and are committed to improving their own communities because they're reporting on the city or town in which they live. How are, they, how are these organizations going to survive with what appears to be the death of traditional newspaper funding and the ongoing corporate consolidation of American local press? And by the way, I'm not just talking about small towns. I'm not just talking about small cities like my hometown of Kansas City. 
Hardly. To say that uh, I am heartbroken and devastated about what has taken place today at the New York Daily News uh, is to put it mildly. They completely ravaged the newspaper, which is a New York City institution. The history of this city has been chronicled by the New York Daily News. And today, let's just talk about the sports section, because that's what's closest to me. John Harper, one of the best baseball writers in the country, he's been there over 25 years. He got fired. Frank Isola, who is one of the best basketball writers in the country, he got fired. Mike Mazzio, who actually left ESPN New York to take the job at the Daily News, he got fired while he's in Tampa going to the Yankee game to cover them tonight against the Rays. You know what that means? You know what the Daily News' plan is right now? They're going to cover the New York Yankees with wire services. That's small-town America. That's not New York City. That's an absolute disgrace. You know how many people are left in the sports section of the New York Daily News? Nine after the firings today. Nine people. When I was at the New York Daily News, do you realize that there were some Yankee games? That there would be nine people covering that game. Now they're not going to have a writer covering the New York Yankees. Who would ever buy this paper? Who would ever read this paper? And I know, everybody, the big bad media has come under a real negative cloud over these last two years. Don't believe it. People work hard. And if you don't have newspapers, you cannot keep government in check. And if you think this is a happy day, then you don't know what you're talking about. You're uneducated. The history of this country has been founded on the strength of a free press. This is disgraceful what happened today. And I wish we as a people could rise up and help save people and save jobs and save newspapers. This is a dark day for this country, and that's not hyperbole. Every time a newspaper dies, a little bit of our democracy starts to flicker out. I shake my head and I get choked up thinking about it, Don. That was Michael Kay. He is actually the voice of the Yankees, their television broadcasts. He does all of those, and he has a daily talk show on ESPN New York here in the city. And he used to write for the New York Daily News, a sports writer, and that's why that was so personal to him. But that just happened last summer. The New York Daily News, I basically consider that to be our local paper here in New York City. I subscribe to it. Not anymore, because he's right. What they are going to be providing now is nothing I couldn't find online or from the Associated Press, because that's what they're really going to be using. On the same day of those layoffs at the New York Daily News last summer, the very same day, the Pew Research Center published a new report on newspaper layoffs. More than one-third of newspapers here in America had at least one round of layoffs between January 2017 and April 2018. That's a small window of time. And I'm surprised there weren't more because, frankly, newspapers have layoffs multiple times a year. Newspaper employment across the country from that same time period, January 2017 to April of 2018, declined from around 46,000 people to 39,000 people.
across the country, again, we are talking 46,000 to 39,000. That's a big drop. And let's put it in perspective. 39,000 people. I mean, that is, I'm pretty sure that is less than how many people can fit in Arrowhead Stadium working in newspapers across the whole goddamn country. I'm going to check on that right now. Let's see. Arrowhead Stadium, where the Chiefs play, it's way fewer. There are 76,406 seats at Arrowhead Stadium. So you could almost double the number of people working in newspapers and fit them in that one stadium. Jesus, mother and God of heaven, that's fewer people. You're always hearing about the depressed coal mining industry. Oh, we're going to bring back coal jobs. Fantastic. There are more people working in coal mines than at newspapers. According to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, the number of people working in newspapers, it's fewer than roofers. It's fewer than telemarketers. Oh my God, no! For God's sakes. And it's fewer than fitness trainers and aerobic instructors, by far. There are apparently 215,290 telemarketers who are just happily employed. No! 39,000 people work at newspapers. That's nothing. Now, as Michael Kay pointed out, I do realize that there are going to be people out there, and perhaps you're one of them, who, thinks, who think this is no big deal. After all, you get most of your news from Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Dariana Huffington's blog. Well, I hate to break it to you, but with the exception of your friends who voted for Jill Stein and perhaps your Trump-supporting uncle, who are both equally awful, by the way, and who both get their news from Breitbart and perhaps each other, where do you think most of these news stories come from? The stories that you see posted on Facebook, Twitter, etc. Where do you think your friends get those stories? According to the Chicago Tribune. According to the Detroit Free Press. According to the San Francisco Chronicle. According to the Times-Picayune. The Boston Globe. The Orlando Sentinel. The Philadelphia Inquirer. The Pittsburgh Tribune Review. The Detroit News. And the Houston Chronicle reports. The Los Angeles Times reports. The Oklahoman reports. The Hartford Current reports. The Salt Lake Tribune reports. Yeah. You probably recognized a few of those voices. You want to know why? No! Because in addition to the links your friends post on social media, network and cable news constantly cite and rely on the work of local journalists. And it's frankly, it's not even just news outlets. Shows like Real Time with Bill Maher, The Daily Show, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, and Last Week Tonight. They literally get the vast majority of their material from local newspapers, and frankly, they would tell you that. Stupid shows like ours lean heavily on local papers. In fact, whenever this show is mistakenly called journalism, it is a slap in the face to the actual journalist whose work we rely on. Yeah. The sad truth is, most newspapers are businesses. They're for-profit companies, and they pay their expenses with a combination of subscription revenue, newsstand sales, and ad revenue. Print ads are clearly much less popular than they used to be, and sadly, digital ads produce much less revenue. So as a result, newspapers aren't doing as well. In fact, that's an understatement. I mean, a lot of newspapers are struggling to survive. 
For example, 10 years ago today, the Denver metropolitan area had two daily newspapers, the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. Well, by March of 2009, they were down to one. The Rocky Mountain News, despite winning two Pulitzer Prizes less than three years earlier, it ceased publication after 150 years. Then in 2010, the Denver Post was purchased by Alden, a New York City hedge fund, and has been shrinking ever since. At its height, the Denver Post's newsroom counted more than 250 people. As of last May, they have fewer than 75 journalists. Now, this is a, a paper that has won nine Pulitzers over 125 years. And not only do they do good work, but people buy this paper. In July of 2018, so last July, Agility PR Solutions, which is a media monitoring and analytics provider, they had the Denver Post listed as the 15th most circulated newspaper in the country. In the country. Now, number one was the New York Times. Number two, the Washington Post. Number three, USA Today. Those all make sense. The LA Times was seventh. Boston Globe was 11th. And 15th was the Denver Post. How is it possible that they're getting their asses kicked? People buy this paper. How is it possible they're shrinking so drastically so quickly? 15th most circulated paper in the country. My paper, the Kansas City Star, is not on there. And just to be clear here, yes, newspaper, newspapers, the print editions, sure, they seem old-fashioned, but the newspaper industry, they're not trying to resist the changing times. I mean, think about it. Every single newspaper has a website and online services. And from what I can tell, there are very few, if any, articles written in their print editions that don't eventually go online. The problem if you ask me, is all the extra shit that comes with the digital age. And you don't have to take my word for it. Here's Marty Barron. He's the current editor of the Washington Post, former editor of the Boston Globe. For you movie buffs out there, he was portrayed by Leif Schreiber in the movie Spotlight. Here he is talking about what it's like to be a journalist today. They have to do their traditional reporting, they have to participate in social media, they have to produce a wire service that's available 24 hours a day, they have to be responsible for video, uh, you name it, uh, they're, involved, they're involved in it. Uh, it's a lot to ask. It is a lot to ask. You know what? I can tell you, just from running this dog and pony show, that trying to maintain and keep up to date the Facebook page, the Instagram account, to tweet regularly, get the podcasts up, and so on. In all honesty, it's, it's kind of impossible. I mean, my focus, for better or worse, is on putting together the best show I possibly can each and every week. That's, that's the most important thing to me, above all that other crap. To me, getting the show up and having a good show, that's what's most important, as I imagine the actual reporting, getting it right, keeping it accurate, getting it out on time, is to journalists. Unfortunately for them, in addition to all these other dumbass additional tasks, the menial tasks, they also now have to care about getting it first. Think about that. More important than the story itself, journalists are expected to tweet, make videos, post to Facebook, and be faster, not more accurate, but faster than their colleagues and their competitors. 
As John Oliver astutely points out, this undoubtedly leads to mistakes being made. Mistakes are going to get made. Perhaps that is how the Boston Globe wound up tweeting following a shooting in Tennessee that the FBI had investifarted about 70 leads. <laughs> Clearly, if they had more time, they would have written hashtag investifarted because that's how you drive the conversation. Hashtag investifarted. Now that's funny. <laughs> that is funny. And I've investifarted a lot of stuff. But in all seriousness, it is more than just a decline in quality. As I said before, things like digital ads, they bring in a fraction of what papers used to make on print ads. So with all this transitioning into the digital age, I mean, papers are losing money. That's what it comes down to. They're losing a crap load of money. And without as much money, they can't pay as many reporters, journalists, photographers. Speaking of which, photographers. And this is just devastating. In May of 2013, the Chicago Sun-Times fired every photographer they had on staff. They just laid off the entire photography staff, including a Pulitzer Prize winner. And now they use photos they find on social fucking media. You gotta be kidding me! I mean, to think it's not noticeable is just a fucking joke. The newspaper's management team said that Firing every photographer was a result of needing to shift more toward online video. I mean, what? So after the photojournalists are gone, okay, then they start cutting more people. Like people who cover state houses, for example. And the, you know, that may sound like it means nothing to you, but it does and it should. A study of over 200 papers found that between 2003 and 2014, the number of full-time state house reporters declined by 35%. If local journalists aren't there at city hall meetings or at the state legislature covering state and city politics, who the hell will be? The day I run into a Huffington Post reporter at a Baltimore zoning board hearing is the day that I will be confident that we've actually reached some sort of equilibrium. You know, there, there's no glory in that kind of journalism, but that is the bedrock of what keeps, you know, got the next 10 or 15 years in this country are going to be a halcyon era for state and local political corruption. It is going to be one of the great times to be a corrupt politician. Right? <laughs> what? You know, I, I really envy them. I really do. That was David Simon, who, before creating the TV show The Wire, worked for many years at the Baltimore Sun. And he's absolutely right. The Huffington Post... In most national media outlets, they don't go to the Kansas cap state capital and sit in on sit in on anything. They certainly don't go to Kansas City Hall to find out what they're going to do about the snow plows. They don't do any of that stuff because, frankly, it's not fit for national news. That's what we have local journalists for. As I said before. Newspapers aren't trying to resist the changing times. They absolutely have to expand online as much as possible, and they are. Here's the danger in doing that, though. Oh, God, this kills me. In addition to all the dangers I've already listed, it's the temptation to gravitate towards whatever gets the most clicks. Oh, yes, clickbait. Let's talk a little about clickbait, shall we? Because we're gonna. When I think of websites or media outlets that rely heavily on clickbait, what could possibly compare to BuzzFeed? None! 
Now, to be fair, I've hated BuzzFeed since its inception, and I've held firm to my belief that most, if not all, of what you'll find on BuzzFeed is stupid, meaningless, garbage, crapola. Every day, I mean, in this, I'm sure you can relate, every day I see at least two to four links on my newsfeed to things like, 14 places you have to poop before you die. Or, four famous people Amanda Bynes has called ugly. Or perhaps, the top 10 reasons atheists suck. Now these would be some of BuzzFeed's more intelligent articles. Look, even though they have posted, you know, some questionable stories about Michael Cohen and a Trump dossier, the vast majority of what you see posted on BuzzFeed is silly and usually they come in it comes in the form of a fucking list. The 15 best places to kiss your boyfriend. The 19 best places to scratch your balls. Most of these lists are yes, that dumb and all of them are subjective. The headlines, quote unquote headlines, they're designed specifically to fuel the number of clicks and page views they get. They want you to click on the links so that they can waste more people's time and thus get more money from advertisers and sponsors. BuzzFeed, to their credit, is very good at coming up with enticing clickbait. The problem is they're not good at coming up with anything else. They use their clickbait to effectively replace content. Now, let's be clear, I'm not against people posting random asinine shit on the internet. God knows there are thousands of sites, like BuzzFeed, devoted to doing just that. The problem is, that is not how newspapers are supposed to work. Jesus, sweet Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Good Lord! Now, you would think no one on earth believed that more than people who work at, or all the more, People who run or own newspapers. I mean, if some schmo like me knows that shouldn't happen, that no newspaper, no, you know, trusted, reliable, cre credible newspaper should run like BuzzFeed at all. Well, then surely people who work in the industry know that. Well, sadly, that's not always the case. Listen to this walking fart, Sam Zell. His name is Sam Zell. He's a billionaire investor who looks like a life-size garden gnome. And 10 years ago, he took over the Tribune Company, which owns newspapers like the Orlando Sentinel, the Chicago Tribune, and the Baltimore Sun. After acquiring the company, he spoke to the Orlando Sentinel's newsroom to outline his vision for the company. Now, be forewarned, the audio is not great, and even if it was crystal clear, that might even make it tougher to listen to. Do stick it out, though, and make sure you catch the last two words he says. They are very telling. Oh, boy. My attitude on journalism is very simple. I want to make enough money so I can afford you. It's really that simple, okay? You need to, in effect, help me by being a journalist that focuses on what our readers want and therefore generates more revenue. But what readers want are puppy dogs. I mean, we also need to perform the community. I'm sorry. Here. I'm sorry. Uh, I can't, uh, you know, you're, you're giving me the classic, what I would call journalistic arrogance of deciding that puppies don't count. 
Hopefully we get to the point where our revenue is so significant that we can do puppies and a rat. Okay? Okay, that audio is worse than I expected, so I'll just tell you what he's saying and what's happening right there. Sorry about that. Uh, basically, that is Sam Zell talking to a room full of reporters who he is suddenly the boss of. He is telling them, basically, that all that matters to him is money. He has to make money, so they as journalists need to help him make money, which means they have to put on the page what the readers want to read. And then at that point, a journalist raises her hand and says, well, you know, to be fair here, most of the time readers want puppies and kittens. You know, we have to give them sometimes what the community needs to be informed about. And that pisses him right the hell off. He says, you're being an arrogant journalist who says that puppies aren't important. Look, maybe if we make enough money, we can get to the point where we can do puppies and the war in Iraq. But until then, we need to give the readers what they want. And he finishes his little speech off by looking at her and saying, fuck you to his new employee. Unbelievable. So basically what he's saying is if the readers want puppies, you give them fucking puppies. Screw any actual reporting of any substance you might feel that the public needs to know about. And when questioned, and when she points out that perhaps sometimes what is popular isn't always the most important thing, just like what is fun isn't exactly the most productive, well, he called her arrogant and actually said, fuck you. Now, luckily, Zell no longer owns Tribune, but these seem to be the types of people who buy newspapers. And also, just to be clear, they might have gotten rid of Zell, but Tribune's latest attempt to balance business pressures with journalistic responsibilities, well, they, they did not inspire much confidence. They recently rebranded their publishing arm into something so stupid, it's hard to really believe it's real. This is the future of journalism. This is the future of content. It doesn't get much better than that. If you care about media and technology, this is the place to be. Trunk stands for Tribune Online Content. Trunk. That's right. They chose to call their company Trunk. And wouldn't you know it, that's the company that purchased the New York Daily News last summer for literally $1.00 before completely annihilating it. So what is Tronk? And how is it going to work? And how is it going to be so innovative? One of the key ways we're going to harness the power of our journalism is to have a optimization group. This Tronk team will work with all of the local markets to harness the power of our local journalism, feed it into a funnel, and then optimize it so that we reach the biggest global audience possible. What? the fuck did she just say they're gonna feed journalism into a funnel what someone 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 slap me thank you i still don't get it i mean really none of that made any sense to me none of this makes any goddamn sense to me does it make sense to you no this is scary and bad 
It doesn't make sense to me, but you know, perhaps it will make sense to someone who works on the inside. Earlier today, I had the opportunity to speak to Sam Mellinger. He is a longtime sports columnist, an award-winning sports columnist for my hometown paper, the Kansas City Star. He has worked there since 2000. That's a long time. He's seen a lot of changes, both to the Kansas City Star and to the newspaper and, you know, media industry as a whole. I talked to him this afternoon and uh, got his perspective. It was very insightful. Take a listen. All right, so joining me now is Sam Mellinger. He's been a sports columnist for the Kansas City Star since 2000, has won numerous national regional awards for his coverage of the Chiefs, Royals, colleges, and whatnot. So as a Kansas City and myself, what I see Sam's job as, in, in addition to opining on the teams and their decisions and whatnot. It's also to kind of break down and explain various decisions made and actions taken within the Kansas City sports community. Sam, would you say that's part of what your job is as a local sports columnist? Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Nailed it. What would you say the impact is? I mean, do you feel, do you get a lot of responses to your columns, whether they're about a Chiefs coach hire or a Royals contract extension? Do you hear from fans? Yeah, I hear from people all the time, um, and it's you know it's it's one of the best parts of the job. I mean, you know, I think um, the, the definition that you just gave is you know completely accurate, and you know if that's the end of it, that's you know that's that's it, that's enough. But there, you know, there's also a general feeling, at least that I have. We all approach these jobs differently. Those of us, you know, lucky enough to have them, and um, I, I think it's you know to build connections. I think I think that's important too, and and that feedback that you get, whether it's an email, voicemail, you know, something on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Um, somebody at the grocery store, you know, that happens. Like, um, you know, wherever it is, I think that's an important part of it, a part of it as well. What would you, just briefly, could you explain to people what the difference between a columnist and a reporter is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so I think those lines are probably blurrier than, than they used to be. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, my job, there's more freedom um, you know, I can generally like put my own opinion in there, uh, where in, in a place where a reporter can't, and now a reporter can, can offer perspective and, and should, um, you know, the best ones do, but there, there's, it, it's hard to explain until you get there and see it. But there, you know, there's certain things that, that I can write that, you know, are excellent beat writers can't, you know, uh, the, the clearest example would be, um, you know, two years in a row now, I've written that Bob Sutton should be fired. As the, you know, he's the, the chief defensive coordinator. Right. Um, our reporter can't do that. You know, right. our reporter can write that the defense has struggled um, and people are upset and all that stuff. But the reporter can't just flat out say that the, the guy should be fired. And, uh, you know, the columnist can. Right. OK, so now so new. this is kind of coincidental, but news because you and I had spoken before this, but I saw news broke on Friday that McClatchy, the uh, parent company of the Kansas City Star, is offering buyouts to about 10% of the workforce. And uh, in an email to employees, the company said they were rolling out two initiatives, including, quote, a voluntary early retirement program for qualified colleagues as we continue to align the size of our workforce to, to the changes that come with digital transformation. Now, apparently one of those changes is a, a far, far fewer journalists. This... I mean, this is like one of the a few stories I've seen like this in the past few years. It seems like the stars kind of been like a lot of papers 
has been a little decimated by these layoffs, buyouts, and retirements. Uh, they, I think the last round was in um, August when McClatchy cut 3.5% of the workforce at the Kansas City Star. And then a few months before that, they laid off 10 newsroom employees. So according to KCUR, that brings the Star's newsroom down to about 70 employees covering a city of half a million people. When you, I mean, what is your guys' response each time one of these rounds of layoffs happen? I mean, surely you have to feel that. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's it's the worst, you know. Um, everybody who goes through this, uh, you know, they're, you know, you're not friends with everybody, right? It's, it's, it's a big office, but um, they're, for the most part, they're friends, they're colleagues. Um, you know, they do good work. Uh, you know, that, that might be the most frustrating part of it is, um, you know, if you work somewhere and the people getting laid off kind of suck at their job or, you know, if they're lazy, if they do bad work, you know, that's, you know, an entirely different issue. But a lot of times these are, these are people who are doing great work and, you know, that's kind of the most disheartening part of it. it you know, at some point, um, you know, I've been at the star, you just said this, but I've been at the star since 2000 and, um, you know, layoffs, have, it, it's sad to say, have kind of been a permanent part of the life there, uh, or, you know, on some levels. Look, um, when I got hired, it was to cover high schools. There were seven of us. Um, now we have one. Wait, there were and, seven of you covering just high schools? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and, and now we have one, and he's, uh, his name's Sam McDowell. He's great. Um, but I think if, if you talk to Sam, he would say that his primary job is to cover sporting Kansas City. You know, he, he's the beat writer for that. We had seven people. You know, we did other stuff like, you know, sidebars and features and stuff like that. But, you know, our, our focus was high schools. and That doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, it's, it's just it's a reshaping. But, you know, look, I get it, you know, and um, I, I get that the money is different and, um, you know, the monetizing of of you know, digital journalism is a bigger challenge. Um, I also, I always think this, I'm, I'm not defending, um, I, I'm not trying to tell you that, that newspapers are, are prospering and growing. No, nobody would do that. Um, but I would also say, like, this is happening everywhere. This isn't just a, a newspaper problem. It's kind of a, uh, it's an everywhere problem. Um, you know, if you look at TV stations and, and you know, a lot of other places, uh, they're kind of going through the same thing. And um, if uh, the number, I don't know, but I'm assuming the number you just quoted is correct, 70. If we have 70 people, 70 journalists employed by the Star, that's way more than any other outlet in the region. Okay. But is it, I was just going to say, so yeah, you've been with the Star since 2000. Are you like one of the longest tenured employees? I haven't thought about that, but... I might be, which sounds weird. I don't feel, you know. I was going to say, you must have, you started when you were, what, like 22? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, first job out of school. Um, You know, just in the sports department, Blair Kirkhoff has been there, um, you know, longer than I have. Uh, There's an editor named Chris Fickett, and uh, I don't, if I've been there longer than him, it's only by a couple months and, and, and vice versa. Um, in the newsroom, there's a few like news reporters or editors, but yeah, that sounds weird to say out loud. Um, <laughs> you know, not to make uh, you feel. I, I, know, I know I'm not 22 anymore, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, it does feel like I'm old enough to be one of the longest tenured people at the paper. But yeah, that's probably true. Are you? You're a native. Are you a Kansas City native? Yeah, I uh, I grew up in Lawrence. I never know how to answer. I, I, like some people think Lawrence is part of Kansas City, and some people don't. It's it's about 40 minutes uh, west of Kansas City. 
So I, I feel like I grew up in Kansas City, but certainly not the same as, you know, somebody that went to Blue Spring South or, you right. know, Northeast or Johnny Mission West. You grew up, I mean, the closest professional sports teams were certainly the Chiefs. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, without question. in addition to, I mean, you just named one big one in terms of there being seven high school sports reporters and now there's one, but what other major changes have you seen at the star in the 19 years you've been there? Um, yeah, I mean, a ton, right? Like right. I, I wouldn't even know really where to start, but there, there's just a lot of beats. Like it, it's harder to get to city hall. And, you know, you, you hear things like that a lot. Um, you know, one thing that, that's interesting though, is I bet you that, uh, this past season we traveled more people to chiefs road games than we did at any other point since I've been at the star. I can't speak to before that. Um, but I mean, we, we had five riders and a photographer at every game and, um, you know, home and road. And I think back in the day, I think we used to do three or four riders and a photographer. So I think it's, it's a, you know, maybe a, a consolidation of resources where we believe the most, most of our readers are interested, mm-hmm. you know, um, Last year, this isn't the case this year, but last year we had two Mizzou beat writers. Um, you know, that's never happened before. We have two KU beat writers. That's never happened before. You used to do just one. So maybe it's, it's, it's taking, and it's a net loss. And again, I'm not trying to paint this as newspapers are flourishing. It's, it's a net loss. But instead of, you know, us having a reporter at seven different high school football games on a Friday night, um, you know, now we just have one extra one at a KU game, one extra one at a Chiefs game, things like that. I think, you know, I guess more of a conscious effort to be where uh, the most readers are. And like, let's be honest, right? Like the most profits, you know, the mm-hmm. most the interest equals money. Um, so I think it, it's, it's a conscious effort to do that rather than, um, you know, try to be sort of the, the paper of record and be all things to all people. I think there, there's a recognition that we cannot, we can, if we ever could, and that's debatable, um, but if we ever could be all things to all people in Kansas City, we can't do that now. So we need to be, you know, all things to the most people or, you know, the, you know, ha- have the most coverage of, of what the most people are interested in. And it also sounds like the it's kind of different companies and different editors, I guess, kind of pick and choose where to make these cuts. Because, I mean, in, in May of 2013, I mean, I'm glad to hear that the star still has photographers going to games because in 2013, the Chicago Sun-Times laid off its entire photography staff. I mean, that's like, when you hear stuff like that happening, that's when it's really like, holy crap. I mean, that's when you really start to feel it. Um, So what would you say is lost when a paper's newsroom downsizes like this? I mean, obviously, there's a difference between losing 10 reporters and losing half of the newsroom. But like, what do you think we're losing? Well, there's a couple ways to answer that. Um, like the first thing that comes to mind for me, and this is selfish, this is totally like self-centered. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind for me is editors. You know, I think a lot of times, um, you know, the, the reporters and the writers have their names and, you know, the bylines, um, and, and editors don't, but anybody who has been a writer at a newspaper, a magazine, a- anywhere knows that, you know, editors are gold, you know, edit. I was like, copy editors are my favorite people in the world, except for Bo Jackson and my wife and my kids. They are amazing. 
and we just don't, we don't have that as much anymore. There's, there's more mistakes. There's more, um, you know, typos and look like I'm the first person to say like, um, that's up to us, you know, the writer, like, you know, send in clean copy. Uh, but you know, that doesn't, you know, we're humans, we make mistakes. And, uh, you know, that, that's the biggest thing to me. Um, you know, and the, the other thing is just, I think in a more, so that, that would be the most like sort of, you know, uh, micro way mm-hmm. to look at it. And again, very selfish. That's, you know, how I'm looking at as, as the writer, you know, but more of a, a general point of view. Um, it, it's just thinner. Um, I guess I mean that literally, like, you know, the print edition is thinner, but more what I mean is there's less support. Uh, I just talked about editors, but, um, you know, circulation problems are, are harder to get to. Um, you know, we, we can still, and, and I take great pride in our newsroom's ability to cover like big events. We, we still do, um, in some ways, maybe even more than we used to, uh, you know, big investigations, um, you know, stuff like holding the powerful accountable. I think we do a great job with a lot of that stuff. Um, but it's harder to get to, it's just, it, it, you don't have as wide a net to cast, I, bet, I guess is, is the best way to put it. And, you know, what really um, is somebody that believes in, the free press and, and the value of journalism. And, and I'm, this is not me being high and mighty. I get that sports doesn't matter. Like this, when when I talk about this stuff, I'm talking about people like Brian Lowry and Laura Bauer and Tony Rizzo and the, you know, Glenn Rice, like people that are doing like real stuff um, and not just covering games. Like the, the, the value that those people bring, you know, not just to the newspaper, but, you know, to Kansas city. Um, and you said like 500,000, I think that's the Kansas city, Missouri population. There's about 2 million oh, in the geez. metro area. And that's a real value to, you know, there's, uh, you know, when there's shenanigans going on in city hall, when there's, you know, taxpayer money being wasted, when there's, you know, sunshine laws being uh, violated when, you know, all that stuff, that's what real journalists, that's what, again, like Laura Bauer and, and you know, kind of the, the, the real, kick-ass reporters that we have in the newsroom that that's what they do and they do a great job of it and absolutely like they are tremendous i have so much pride in in you know sort of being teammates with them um but there's just not as many you know Mm -hmm. and when you have fewer bodies you can you can do fewer things so what and it's kind of tough because i know that these are for-profit companies but other than firing people what are companies like mcclatchy tribune gannett what are they doing to combat the loss in revenues. I mean, what can they do? I don't know, man. Like, I, uh, I'm, this is a little bit out of my depth, right? Like, well, um, well here's one thing okay. is that, um, I think there was a big mistake when, you know, with newspapers going public and, you know, when, once you become accountable to shareholders that there was, you know, people don't believe this, but like there, there was a time where, um, you know, newspapers were making, 20, 30, 40% profit margins. I mean, just outrageous amount, you know, like literally that, that was a line about like a newspaper prints money, you know, that, and, and people got used to that. And so, uh, you know, now when 40% becomes 30%, you trim a little bit when 30% becomes 20%, you trim a little bit and you keep going down and down and you're giving, you know, less product for more, you know, and, and, and you're charging more, um, you know, that seems to be a tough way to go about it, right? Like, um, I, I think that uh, we have to get to a place, and I, I kind of think we're there. Um, you know, we're certainly more there 
than we were a year ago, and I hope that we're more there a year from now of, you know, people being, uh, you know, not just okay, but happy to uh, pay for digital subscriptions. That, that's a big bridge, right? And, you know, we, we just gave that stuff away for free because, you know, people in charge didn't think that there was a, really a value on the website. It was just, you know, we used to just dump it, you know, dump the next day's paper at 11 p.m., which I used to do, by the way, like right after the TV broadcast, just to make sure that they wouldn't rip our stuff um, for the broadcast. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that's the, we, we have to know that that's valuable. We have to be okay charging. You know, there's a sports-only subscription that we started selling, I think, kind of, you know, to, to combat what The Athletic has been doing. You know, for, so for $30 a year, uh, the first year, you can have, like, all our sports content. And I think it's $50 a year for, for the whole papers. You know, we and we have to – and that's just online. That's just, you know, read it on your phone or iPad or computer or whatever. We have to do more of that. I, I think that's where that's where we've got to be. Because they're for-profit public companies, are they not allowed to apply for grants or receive endowments or anything? That's a good question. I don't have the answer. They yeah, Because I, I agree with you. That, yeah. I was thinking about this and I was like, well, look at like NPR. NPR, you know, they're always raising yeah. money, but they do okay. You know, you never hear about them like yeah. being cut in half. Yeah, and I think NPR does great work too. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah. And, and I guess that's, you know, kind of, it's it's a different model, but it's similar. Like, you know, the digital subscription, and maybe this is just me, who you know literally feeds a family through mm -hmm. work at a newspaper and so i'm going to have a, a certain perspective on it but we need to be we need to be so good that uh and and so connected to our readers and and make it so clear that we have their interests first that they are not only okay spending that money on a subscription but happy to do it and, you know, and I, I feel like that's what NPR has because they don't charge a subscription, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, uh, they do these fundraising drives and maybe it's obnoxious for a couple of days because you just want to hear, you know, your shows or whatever, but it's important. They've got to do it. You get it. And and people are happy to do it. And people pay what they can. You know, some people spend, you know, send $5 in. Some people send, you know, hundreds or whatever. Right. And I think that's, you know, kind of the place where a lot of us need to be. And, and I, you know what? I uh, another problem with this, uh, I know I'm kind of filibustering, I, no. so I apologize, but an another problem is, like, for a long time, newspapers, <laughs> for being in, in, in the business of communications, I think newspapers, uh, we were so terrible at communicating, you know, what we do and how we do it and hopefully the value. And I think that started to change maybe a little bit in the last year, you know, like, uh, I know the New York Times and, and, you know, the Washington Post, and there was a weird backstory on that, but the Washington Post had a Super Bowl ad, you know, yesterday. So, like, I mean, the, you know, the, journalism companies are doing, making more of an effort to tell their story. And, and I think that's something that we should have been doing all along. But um, as an institution, I think media companies got so lazy, so lazy uh, for a long time because there just wasn't any other options. And we didn't have to do that. And so we got used to that as, again, an institution. And I think we're, it's been too late, uh, but I think we're finally starting to, to realize the value in, in, in kind of telling our own story a little bit more. Well, and it's interesting because you talk about, you know, meaning having special connections to the community and meaning something to the local people. And I kind of, I started this whole segment by talking about how, you know, having lived in New York for the past eight years, it's made me even more of a Kansas City fan 
And I talk about how, you know, from 2013 to probably June of 2016, I was watching or listening to every single Royals game. And, right. and I would always choose to listen to the local TV or radio guys, except for when you couldn't for blackout reasons or whatever, or uh, if they were the MLB network game of the week or whatever. And it was just funny because while the national people were good at their jobs, every now and then they would say just one little thing about the first baseman that, he, oh, he's from Tampa. Would we know he's from Miami? Or that, you know, uh, this catcher has won three gold gloves when we know it's four. And to me, that's kind of the difference between local people and non-local people. You know, like you might see something about Kansas City covered on CNN, but they're not really going to know or care as much about it as anyone from the star would. And that to me is yeah, the, I, is the difference. Yeah, no, it, um, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that, that you said. I mean, there, there's value in national journalism. Um, you know, like just in, in my small, dumb world of sports, like, um, I know more about the Royals and or the Chiefs and or whatever than, you know, the national, uh, the national baseball writer, for sure. right, for instance. But um, that national baseball writer can do a better job of putting something that the Royals did in a national perspective. You know, like he's going to know more, he or she's going to know more about comparing that to something that, you know, the Astros have been doing or, you know, the, the Nationals. Um, or the Mariners, or whatever, in, in a way that I wouldn't have thought. So there, there, there's value in both, but, um, you know, look, like, I, I kind of try to put a governor on, like, kind of what I'm saying, because I don't want to sound like too much of a zealot, but I think I really do truly believe, and I think I would believe this if I had a, a real job, a normal job, because um, it's part of why I wanted to do this job, is, you know, the, the value in local journalism is, is imperative. Um, I, I really believe that there's just, there are, and this has been proven over time that, you know, um, governments like small local governments that, that don't have a watchdog, uh, perform more inefficiently. They, they break rules. They, they waste money, uh, because there's nobody there to watch. Um, you know, there, there's people who have said that here in town of, um, you know, uh, little, you know, city, city hall meetings are run differently when they know the newspapers there to mm -hmm. watch them. Um, it, it's just, it's a true fact. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's not us looking out for our business. You know, that's us looking out for, you know, the people that we live with our neighbors, mm -hmm. you know, our friends. And, um, you know, if newspapers go away, uh, you know, that's, you know, it, it'd be a good time to be a politician. Because <laughs> I mean, um, you, you kind of got free reign to do whatever, especially you want. a corrupt one. Um, yep. Well, I just tell you, like until this most recent story came out about the cuts from McClatchy, I was kind of under the impression that the Star was in better shape than some other news, uh, some other newspapers around the country, like the Denver Post, for example. Is that a mistake? I mean, like, because is it foolish to think like that? I mean, what, in your opinion, is the uh, current state of the Star, and where is it headed? I think it's better than most. I, I I do believe that, but it's a low bar, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody's doing better than the Denver Post, and um, you know that that'd be a whole different show, right? Like uh, right. talking about you know hedge funds coming in and just crushing everything down and then selling it off for parts. I mean that's that's a uh, that is a brutal existence. And if you know if um, if that ever happened here, you know that, 
uh, this conversation that you and I are having would be entirely, entirely different. Um, I, I think the star generally, um, I think it's called saturation rate. Um, I think I, I, I'm, I'm going to get the, uh, the, the jargon wrong, but the, the percentage of people in a market who are exposed to your product, um, I think they call it saturation rate. But anyway, um, ours is in the upper 90s. Um, you know, like, so people in Kansas City, sometimes whether they know it or not, they, they are exposed to the work of the star. And, you know, and, and I think that, you know, we, we got our problems and people write in and say that we're, you know, too liberal or too conservative, whatever. Um, but that's going to happen. You know, like in my world, it's you're, you're either too pro-KU or too pro-Mizzou or whatever, you know. Right. Um, like that stuff's going to happen. But, um, you know, it, it's a big voice. It's it's the biggest platform in town, you know, I think by far. Um, so I, I think we, we are in like a relative position of strength. But I don't think that anybody who works in a newspaper, anybody who works for any media outlet at this point can, you know, just sort of be like, well, I'm the big dog. I don't have to <laughs> I don't have to worry about. Uh, my future at all. I don't have to worry about my credibility or anything like that. We, that's something that we have to work for every day. And hopefully we were always doing that, you know, hopefully like long before I got into this, hopefully in the sixties and seventies when, you know, people were printing money, hopefully the journalists were, were still doing that, but you know, it makes it more urgent, makes it more real for sure. When you, uh, one of the thing that the ongoing corporate consolidation of American local press has kind of resulted in is outside corporate ownership of a lot of local news outlets, be them TV stations or papers. Um, and there was that big story last year about Sinclair Broadcasting sending out their script to be read at all their local TV stations. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about the trend of irresponsible, one-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news, news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same stories without checking facts first. Unfortunately, some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 What was your reaction to that? And have you ever or any of your colleagues ever, ever, ever been told to say or write something? I can't speak for anybody else, but no, me never. I mean, um, I, uh, that, that was really sad. That's like kind of that state media thing. Right? Wasn't that scary? Claire. Um, I hated it. Yeah, I absolutely hated it. And, um, no, and I, I've never been told to, you know, take it easy on the chiefs because they're a big <laughs> advertiser or go hard on the Royals because they pulled an ad or anything. You know, I'm even making up these, yeah. these scenarios, right? Um, you know, there's been times where an editor will say, like, suggest ideas you know, for sure. But that, that should happen. But, um, you know, if I don't believe it, then I just say it and they, okay, that's cool. Um, 
you know, and then we talk about something else. So, no, that's never happened for me, and I don't know. I've never heard. I've got a lot of friends in this business, as I'm sure you do. Like, um, I've never heard of anybody else um, who's been in that situation, thankfully, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine what some of those local news anchors had to have been thinking reading that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, no, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. And, you know, the... the um, you know, I, I disagree with it on, on every possible level, right? But one of the things that drives me crazy about that is I think that it's it's self-defeating because you're trying to convince people mm-hmm. of a certain point of view, which is fine, you know, like have an editorial at the end, you know, whatever. But like when you're trying to convince people, that story's going to come out. Like you're dealing with reporters, yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> all over the all over the country. Yeah, so that is going to come out that you're like force feeding this, you know, specific narrative, and so once that happens, people are going to hear about it, and there goes your credibility. So to me, like, you know, if if you have this purpose of changing people's minds one way or the other, that's fine. Um, but you know, to to achieve that goal. I think that's one of the dumbest ways that you could go about it. Right. And I guess the reason why I even bring it up now is because, okay, so that was Sinclair and they don't, they actually, they own TV stations uh, strictly, I believe. But when it comes to newspapers, you know, there's Gannett, McClatchy, Tribune, Digital First and Hearst. And those are kind of the big five. Uh, If one of those papers or one of those companies and you could, you know, Digital First or, you know, Tribune, it wouldn't be that crazy to hear them be like look because the digital first they own the boston herald oakland tribune denver post among others could yeah i could see them being like hey look we need you to say this and that would be i mean it's just yeah. scary to think about where that would lead you know that's a slippery slope yeah you know what like you know um uh you asked me the question i answered it and i haven't talked to this guy but i know the the case of um oh my gosh uh i'm forgetting i'm blanking on his last name dave um, Krieger, Dave Krieger, uh, who used to work at the Denver Post and then worked at the Boulder Camera, whatever the, the mm. newspaper is in Boulder, and, and he got fired uh, because he wrote something critical of upper management, critical of his bosses. So that's a real thing that happened. And and Dave is a hell of a journalist. Um, I know Dave a little bit from, from his time. He used to cover baseball some. Um, I, I knew him that way. Um, and uh, so th- that would be the closest of anything that I've heard in print. Um, and uh, so it's there. You know, I'm not naive enough to think that uh, that could never happen to me or whatever, but hopefully I'd act the same way Dave did, you know. Yeah, I think the Denver Post, their editorial board, uh, tried to fight back. I mean, they wrote a hu- huge, That's right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. huge piece calling their owners vultures, said they cared about nothing, nothing about local media and they needed to be saved. Could you see the star doing that if McClatchy... How is McClatchy... I mean, does McClatchy... They seem like a, one of the better companies. Would you agree? Yeah. I, yeah, I think just from, from what I hear, you know, um, and the cynic might say one of the, you know, least bad or whatever. Right, but, yeah. Um, you know, certainly the stories I hear about, like Gannett or, you know, any of these other companies, really any of them, um, are way worse. McClatchy, I think, kind of, for the most part, I, I know we're just talking about the story on Friday, um, but, you know, really for the most part, I think it's kind of, you know, they, they got company-wide initiatives, and some of them are really good, some of them I don't agree with. Uh, that's true in, in 
probably any media company, probably true in any walk of life, right? There's people listening to this who work, you know, real jobs and they've got company-wide initiatives that sometimes they agree with or don't. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think like certainly on the newspaper scale, McClatch has been pretty good. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, and before I let you go, I have two what I call grab bag questions. The way I end interviews, just kind of asking off the cuff stuff. The first one is as a writer, a sports writer in Kansas City, having been there since 2000. Now, I grew up in Kansas City. We had season tickets to the Royals and the Chiefs, and they were terrible back then. Um, Well, the Chiefs were okay, but they never, you know, you know the story. Um, How exciting was it to do your job in 2014 and 2015 for the Royals? Remember, those were the two years that the Royals suddenly went from being horrible, and I mean horrible, to being back-to-back American League champions. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell people all the time, like, if, if I live to be 250 years old and do this job until my last breathing day, like, I don't know that I'll ever have more fun working than I did in those two seasons. It was um, it, it is impossible to describe uh, how much it wasn't. I, I don't think that you can fully understand it. I don't think you can fully get it if you weren't here or if you haven't lived here mm-hmm. to know that it wasn't just that for so long you had been taught that the Royals would never be good right. never have something like this, but you were taught that they could never, you know, like that, that it was just yeah. fundamentally impossible for any of this to happen. And it wasn't, you know, when Dayton got there in 2006, um, that was a long road. There were a lot of people in town, you know, on the radio, whatever, who, who were calling for Dayton Moore and Ned Yost to be fired in 2014. Mm-hmm. In 2014, they had a losing record after the All-Star break. There were a lot of people that wanted them gone, called them incompetent, all these things. And then at the end of the year, they're planting, you know, they're one swing away from the World Series championship. It was just, um, it, it was incredible. Like, just the, the, the view of... Uh, this is this is something so simple, um, but I think this this speaks to what it was like the the change. Um, I had never seen Kauffman Stadium. I've been going to games since I was too young to remember going to games, mm-hmm. and I don't remember ever seeing the stadium completely full and completely blue before. Because in the eighties, this is easy to forget, but in the eighties, people didn't wear like jerseys right. and you know, the colors and stuff like that that they do now. And and then once they started doing that, the only time it was full was either opening day and people weren't really, like, decked out in all blue then, or it was when the Cardinals were in town, so half the stadium was red. It had never – you had just never seen Kauffman Stadium that full and that blue um, before the end of 2014. That's kind of, like, how fundamentally different it was. And I remember – because I usually get back to Kansas City twice a year, once during Christmas and once in the summer – and when I came home those two summers, especially 2015, it wasn't just Royals fans. I mean, the whole city was just, it yeah. was Royals fever. Everyone was happy, excited, because in that to me, it's funny, because I have a friend here who is a diehard Yankees fan. And I remember in 2015, he was talking about how, you know, these poor Yankees fans, it had been so long since they had made the playoffs. It had been like three years. They just don't understand, and it just meant so much to locals and, and Royals fans. Yeah, there's. Um, we could get really deep on this, um, but like I would say, like sports are the most irrelevant thing in the world 
right up until the point where they're the most important thing <laughs> in the world. And, and there's it doesn't happen often, but there's points like that where I, I think it's amplified in a place like Kansas City that that you know there's this kind of civic inferiority complex here Mm -hmm. and people feel overlooked they feel you know oh it's always about new york or la or chicago or whatever um and and there's there's nothing that can sort of lift the way people collectively feel quite like a sports team and and i think um you know i think we got a little bit of taste of it this fall um you know patrick mahomes Mm -hmm. you got a lot of people excited but um you know, I don't think it'll be quite. There's something about baseball that's a little bit more personal. I don't know if it's because they play every day, right? Um, you know, or whatever. But there's something about baseball that's a little bit more personal. I just, you know, it, it was Kansas City. Um, I don't think has ever in my lifetime. I don't think Kansas City has ever felt better about itself uh, than it did in 2015. And you know, you talk about people being kind of trained to think that we could never be good. Like, like I said, so I was born after their first world series so literally my entire life they had not just been not great they had been horrible (laughs) like i think the idea of them being in the world series was like saying that it was raining you know ducks like it was just like it was something that i couldn't even fathom so that made it all the more special but um and my second question is kind of a you were just talking about a little bit how excited are you about the chiefs and and really because here's the thing like I'm very cautious when it comes to the Chiefs because of the heartache that we've all felt year after year. Yeah, I mean it's. Um, <laughs> I, I guess it's sort of similar to what we've been talking about with the Royals. Uh, you know, the Chiefs um, have literally never drafted like their own. You know, Todd Blackledge or you right. know. Like, here, here's a way to say it: uh, before this season, um, the most successful quarterback that the Chiefs drafted was probably Steve Fuller. <laughs> That's sad. Probably the most successful quarterback that the Chiefs drafted and played for, and, and who played for the Chiefs. And so that was another thing. Like I, I was, we were just talking about, you know, people in Kansas City have been taught to, you know, that the Royals could never do this. People in Kansas City have been taught that the, the Chiefs will never draft their own quarterback and build it. It's always going to be somebody else's backup, you know, usually from the 49ers. Yeah. Uh, occasionally it'll be Matt Castle, uh, <laughs> but it's always going to be somebody else's backup. And right. So, you know, not just for, for them to, to break away from that, but to draft this like just absolute like rocket ship, you know, um, who is, you know, kind of redefining, I mean, this isn't hyperbole, like redefining how that position is played, no look passes and stretching the field and, um, you know, left-handed passes to, you know, help win a game in Denver. Um, you know, to, to see that, to see this organization that, you know, just fundamentally had been about conservative play action passing, um, short passes, ball control, defense, to see it go from that, you know, to this like curly haired, you know, freak show who <laughs> is running around and just throwing it 70 yards down the field. With that voice. Um, is Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I've said this before, but like th- this watching him, and look, I, I was kind of like an early adapter on, on Patrick Mahomes. Like, I, I thought he was going to be great. Um, I actually thought he might be this good someday, but just no way did you think it was going to Immediate, in year yeah. One. Yeah, and, and so th- this whole year, like, watching him was this kind of, like, mental tug-of-war between what you think is possible, um, the limits of what you think is possible versus what you're actually seeing on the field. 
You know, like, I mean, no way would you ever think a first-year starting quarterback, who's a second-year in the league, but first-year starting quarterback, you know, can go 5,050 and, and do it, you know, sort of in those ways. It was just, um, you know, mind-blowing. It really was. So, okay, so you – so you just mentioned earlier that you wrote twice that they should fire Bob Sutton. They finally have. I personally was hoping they would hire Rex Ryan. How do you, I know you just wrote a column about Steve Spagnuolo, their new defensive coordinator. Do you feel like that'll be the missing piece? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's a smart hire. I, I think they did. I completely understand the reasons behind it. They, you know, Rex Ryan, I don't think was ever going to be a fit. Um, for, for a few reasons, but Spagnola like has a, a history with Andy Reid. Um, you know, it goes back like, um, you know, people who know them both will say, you know, they kind of speak their own language or speak, speak the same language. Um, Spagnola is a little bit more aggressive than Sutton. I mean, it, it's just, it's a good fit in those ways. And, you know, I think what happened was, um, I think the chiefs looked at it and they thought, look, man, we were D four lining up correctly or, you know, a coin flip, literally a coin flip, um, you know, or, you know, one of a dozen other things from, mm-hmm. from beating the Patriots and getting into the Super Bowl. So let's not take a home run swing. You know, let's yeah. make sure we, we, we make one step forward. Um, and, and we'll make a higher where, you know, worst case scenario, we're one step forward. We might go 10, but that's better than making a riskier hire where maybe we go 20 steps forward, but we might go 10 back. Yeah. I think that that was sort of the, the calculus there. Well, hopefully I can have you back once the Chiefs have finally gotten over that hump and won the Super Bowl. Who knows? It could be next year. It could be in 10 years. And hopefully you'll yeah. still have a job. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah, what, would you, what would you leave you with? I mean, the best way, the only way they can really save papers, whether it's the Star or the Sacramento Bee or whatever, is to subscribe, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the digital advertising, unless that world gets flipped, you know, Google and Facebook have sort of monopolized digital advertising to a point where, you know, the money that we get at the star is like just to me at least like an embarrassing fraction mm-hmm. of, of what it should be. Um, so yeah, it's it's digital ads, it's it's support for sure. And look, I, I don't know that newsrooms are ever going to be as big as they once were. Um, you know, I don't know if that's ever coming back, but. You know, there's also more outlets. There's more. There's more voices. So maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be quite as big. But for sure, like we need people to su- subscribe. We need people to support us. Absolutely. They may not be as big, but they're always just as important. I think local newspapers. I, hope so. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right, Sam. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. We've been talking to Sam Mellinger. He is of the Kansas City Star, award-winning columnist. He covers the Chiefs, Royals, and local college teams and high school teams so you're listening to the next best thing on radio free brooklyn we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back